I think some people feel like they have to stigmatize suicide because they view it as a prevention tactic. Oh, you'll be motivated not to commit mm-hmm. suicide because the, the fear of the stigma alone will keep you from doing it. But a lot of times it's that fear of the stigma that actually makes you feel worse. And I feel like destigmatizing the act can actually go a lot further in preventing it. Hey there, my name is Sean and this is Suicide Noted. On this podcast, I talk with suicide attempt survivors so that we can hear their stories. Every year around the world, millions of people try to take their own lives and we almost never talk about it. We certainly don't talk about it enough. And when we do talk about it, many of us, including me, are not very good at it. So one of my goals with this podcast is to have more conversations and hopefully better conversations with attempt survivors. I want to thank each and every survivor who has joined me here to talk so candidly on this podcast and to everybody who listens. Now more than 18,000 downloads per month, which simply means more people in more places are hopefully feeling a little less shitty and a little less alone. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. Hello at SuicideNoted.com on Facebook or Twitter at SuicideNoted. And check the show notes. There are some other ways you can reach out and all kinds of other things. For example, Example, you can learn more about our membership program if you want to volunteer our relatively new group on the signal platform however you are involved however you participate or support we really do appreciate it and do keep in mind we are talking about suicide on this podcast like we do every week like the title suggests and we know it's not a good fit for everybody so please take that into account before you listen or as you listen but i do hope you listen because there is so much to learn today i am talking with reggie reggie lives in arizona and she is is a suicide attempt survivor. Hey, Reggie. Are you in a car? I am. Can you talk? I have a full house right now, so I had to come out into the car for privacy, but I don't mind. So, Reggie, in Arizona, pretty nice state, gotta say. It can be. (laughs) We're getting some really rainy Seattle weather right now. Kind of nice. You know we're not here to talk about weather, right? I mean, I I started it, but this is not why we're here. You do realize we're talking about suicide, right? Oh, I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know, Reggie, I don't know if you got the memo. uh, Not a lot of people talk about this. Even people who are sort of in the throes of it, maybe they attempted. You're in the great minority. So I'm wondering, and yes, if you've heard the podcast, you do hear a series of the same questions. Mas o menos, sure. Mas o menos. You want to do this in Spanish? Oh, that's okay. This is a weird question, but do you know why you're in the minority of people who would want to talk about this? I don't think it's the majority, and I think it's not even close. Yes, I know exactly why I needed to come on your podcast to talk about it. Hearing other people on your podcast talk about this may very well have saved my life. I discovered your podcast during a a very dark period of my life a few months ago where I was pretty close to ending it. I was in a very dangerous state of mind. And the only thing that kept me from checking myself into the mental hospital was literally looking up the word suicide on the Advil podcast search and finding your podcast. 
Wow. It's so interesting to hear this stuff, Reggie. I am intensely curious and wanting to always understand more about what it is about hearing other people talk about what they've gone through that in your case, we'll just talk about you Mm -hmm. in some way helped. Can you find words to that? What is it? Because some people would be like, that's, I don't want to hear that. Like that's very, maybe they'd say it was very dark, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't sound like it's dark to you. In many ways, it sounds like almost the opposite. The thing about suicidal ideation and suicide attempt is that the fact that it's not talked about makes you feel like you're the only one and it makes you feel like a failure. Mm. And that just adds fuel to the fire of the, the, the intensity of negative things that you're feeling. I'm one of those people who, when I'm struggling with something, I need to know that I'm not the only one who's struggling with that because knowing that there's other people who are struggling with this and other people who've managed to overcome it makes me feel like less of a failure and it makes me feel less alone. As to my relationship with death, I have a, a, a an interesting relationship with death, both for personal reasons and for cultural reasons. Quick question, and then I want to go back to your relationship with death. You talk about <clears throat> hearing people and knowing that they're going through something similar. I mean, it's hard to compare these things. You feel less of a failure. But what's interesting to me and makes me think that the format I chose for the podcast was the right one. Mm -hmm. It wasn't as if I had a long list. I just knew what I wanted to do was very clear. But you know, I bet you could go on Google right now Mm -hmm. and say, well, there were 48,000 people who were deemed suicide completions last year. Mm -hmm. And even conservatively, five people for every one attempt. It's probably much higher than that. Mm -hmm. So there's hundreds of thousands. Now, you know that. This is a very long-winded way of me asking. Just knowing the fact that there are people out there isn't enough. You needed to hear them. I mean, there's a difference between like nameless statistics and hearing actual individual voices of people who've experienced it. You know, putting not necessarily a face on it, but a voice on it, you know? humanizing it. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And you said you have a relationship. uh, Your relationship with death is sort of twofold, right? So without making broad generalities, um, there is a a tendency, I think, in the Latino community to view death a little bit differently than than mainstream American culture. Mm -hmm. You know, um, we have a tendency sometimes to almost like poke fun of it or get familiar with it you know um you know that's why we have things like dia de los muertos you know like the talavera you know the talavera motif so and again without wanting to make generalities you know we're we're a little bit less afraid of death or Mm -hmm. we treat a little bit more humor and the personal reason why my my why i have a distinct relationship with death is because i've had a, a chronic illness since i was a child When I was 10 years old, I was diagnosed with a very rare kidney disease that progressed to the point where I had to have a kidney transplant in my early 30s. So when I was a kid and they first diagnosed me with this condition, they weren't sure if I was going to make it. So since I was 10 years old, I've almost had this relationship with death where death has kind of just been around the corner, you know, and I don't necessarily have an adversarial relationship with death where it's more like a oh, hey, I see you, you know? Another couple of factors that have um, influenced my relationship with death are the fact that I grew up with a chronically ill parent Mm. who, you know, is still living, but, you know, uh, has multiple disabilities. And there were several times throughout my childhood where I thought my parent was going to die. And I had to kind of 
accept the possibility that I was going to lose a parent and that I was that I might die, you know. Um, and then um, another thing that influenced my relationship with death was in I had a, an older brother who suffered from bipolar disorder and addiction who attempted suicide once he died of an overdose in 2008. So all of these factors in my personal life have given me, I guess, an interesting perspective on death. I don't view it as this awful thing that you have to avoid at all costs, but rather an inevitability. And I feel like I want to have the choice when it happens because it all happens to us eventually. But the thing, but I still have to fight with the demons in my head that want me to be impulsive and go before I'm ready. Like if you die in war, you're a fucking hero, right? Mm-hmm, if mm-hmm. you die a natural death, that's like, you're not a hero. You just die, right? Like you die. if you die, like your brother did of an overdose, there's some, <laughs> Ooh, I don't know if I'm okay with the way you died, buddy. Yeah. Suicide, whether it's overdose or just, I jumped off a bridge. That's like, maybe I'm open to hearing other thoughts on this, of course, the most extreme. And I don't mean just extreme. I mean, the way people view it, mm-hmm. it's like the opposite of, you know, dying in battle. Right, right. It's just a different kind of battle. That's what I'm trying to say. 100% ag- agree. 100% agree. I don't think the stigmatization of suicide helps anybody. I think some people feel like they have to stigmatize suicide because they view it as a prevention tactic. Like, oh, you'll be motivated not to commit mm-hmm. suicide because the the fear of the stigma alone will keep you from doing it. But a lot of times it's that fear of the stigma that actually makes you feel worse. And I feel like destigmatizing the act can can actually go a lot further in preventing it. Destigmatizing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So some people think they're helping by doing that. I kind of never really, I assume that the majority of people who are involved, and I don't mean they're like working for a suicide prevention foundation. I just mean people. Mm-hmm. I'd like to believe mean well. I just think they're fucking clueless. Mm, yes, exactly. <laughs> no, I don't think they're all like evil. Most of them are like, whatever. They're just like, they don't want you to be in pain, but that's the disconnect, isn't it? They just have no idea how to help you. And I think for me, the real rub is instead of people saying, I don't know how to help you. I want to though. Talk to me. They don't do that usually. It's more of this, like what I call, and I'm borrowing this term from someone who I don't remember their name, corrective listening, corrective posturing. And it's almost never helpful. Agreed. That's all I'm saying. All right. It's not the Sean show. It is for now the Reggie show. So we're going to go back to you. (laughs) How many, uh, however you define suicide attempt, how many do you have uh, in your life? Two, no, three. So I'm I'm using the term attempt very loosely. I feel weird about taking up space when other people have have come uh, closer. But for me, an attempt is I, I was this close to doing it. the The first time happened um, when I was I want to say twenty six, twenty seven, and I just had a conflict with the partner at the time. I, I was going through some other inter- interpersonal difficulties. I kept having this this thought in my head, I'm going to throw myself in front of a bus. I'm going to throw myself in front of a bus. And like the thought just would not go away. And I was like legitimately scaring myself thinking that I was going to do it. And it, it was more than an unwanted intrusive thought. Like I was actually walking towards the street. 
ready to do it. Wait, why a bus? Because it's bigger than a car. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so some of it was just more practical. Like there are a lot of buses. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So it's never a car. It's always a bus. I'm going to throw myself in front of a bus. Interesting. So it's a bigger object. So it's probably more likely to end your life. Exactly. For me also, I wonder, it's something driving a bus or conducting a train, but it's less personal as opposed to like one person hitting you and they see it and it just torments them for life. I don't know. Very much. So when you're, when you're 26, 27, this happens. The majority of people I talk to, this is just what I remember. They came real close like in teenage years. That's a big time for people. You're 26, 27. So you're uh, from birth to 26, 27. I'm going to ask you a really unfair question here. You talked about your health, mm-hmm. talked about your parent. And I imagine even at a younger age, your brother was probably going through some difficult times. Mm-hmm. Did you ever come close or think about it then as a possibility until you were 26 sometime before then? No, I did suffer from depression as a teenager. But um, I think what happened with me is the only official diagnoses I have are um, generalized anxiety disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, and major depressive disorder. I have characteristics of ADHD, but um, I didn't meet the, the criteria for diagnosis. And what, what happens with a lot of people who are kind of in the neurodivergent area is we do okay and manage to function up until a certain point. And then at some point in our adulthood, it's like we get really overwhelmed with masking. I feel strange saying that because I, I I don't know if I fall within the neurodivergent umbrella, but I do have characteristics and I don't want to appropriate experiences that aren't mine. But that that's definitely how it felt for me. Like I'd been keeping it together for so long. I finally oh. reached the where I, I couldn't do it anymore. Right. You get so exhausting, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, another factor that I should mention that that influences my difficulties with suicide is I, I grew up Catholic mm-hmm. and it's a very shame-based culture. And even though I'm no longer Catholic, that shame spiral yeah. really gets you, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. You can stop practicing and totally disbelieve the faith, but... When you're brought up some way, it's probably in you somewhere. It doesn't just disappear with uh, you know, some affirmation. Mm-hmm. Shame spiraling, yep. So you had said, I have only, I think the word was only been diagnosed with three things. <laughs> As if that's just what is that? What is that? Not just it's not enough, or you're not you're not qualified. You we need four or five for you to be actually like it's very it's like I hear people's language like. Yeah, those things are fucking hard. They could be really hard to live with. No, they are. They are. I mean, all three of them. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I know people who have ended their lives or tried to end their lives, I should say, who weren't diagnosed with anything. Now, maybe they weren't, it wasn't correct or they were misdiagnosed or I don't know, but that's a whole other conversation about, you know, do people who are not quote unquote mentally ill try to end their lives? I think so. Nonetheless, you're somebody who has, you have diagnoses. Do you agree with them? I do. You said 26, 27. How old are you now? I'm one month shy of 37. Okay. So that was about, and I ask only because that was about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. You came close. Mm-hmm. You didn't do it. How long does that feeling of wanting to throw yourself in front of a bus, and not only that, but the, it sounds like it was many moments in a day. Yeah. How long does that last for before you're kind of a little bit in the clear, or maybe you never have been in the clear since then? For me, it's like a buildup event. Like the the suicide attempt is like the apex of that buildup. Yeah. In the years since when I've had 
moments where I get to that point, like I've figured out strategies for how to de-escalate myself when I get to that apex. And that's really the key. I've come to, I mean, I mentioned I had a couple more attempts since then and other moments where I didn't quite reach the level of, okay, I'm going to do it, but gotten close. And yeah. what I do with my own specific cocktail of mental health issues is I've had to recognize when I'm starting to build up to that point and learn how to de-escalate myself or calm myself down before I get there. But I've kind of accepted that I am going to struggle with this for the rest of my life. I've accepted it even if I don't like it. And it's just a matter of figuring out strategies for how to prevent myself from getting to that point. Right. Do you remember what actually stopped you from throwing yourself in front of a bus that first time? Interestingly enough, I think it was also that Catholic guilt that saved me, even mm. was causing me harm. Because even today, there are some days where I joke that I'm only alive out of a sense of obligation to others because I would feel terrible about how it would hurt other people. And by the way, I want to mention to to any listeners who are listening out there, like, I don't want you to think that I am judging you for your suicide attempt or, or, or if you actually end up doing it. Like, I don't want to create this dichotomy of, oh, if you do it, you're a terrible person. Like, I'm talking specifically about my conversations with myself. And for me specifically, I just think about the pain that it would cause other people, my parents, my my partners, my friends. And I, I've, I've learned to recognize it as a temporary coping strategy. Like I think to myself, okay, I'm at that point of escalation. Right now, I am not capable of staying alive for myself. Like I, 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 I can't do it. I'm going to kind of hold on to staying alive for others for the time being as a placeholder until I can kind of de-escalate and get to a point where I'm okay with living for myself again. So mm. listeners can think of it less as a, a, a shame and blame kind of strategy and more like a, as a temporary placeholder. Sure. You're not telling others how to feel or think or what to do. It's just your own stuff. So I think whatever works for you, however you want to. And also, let's just say this right now. I don't, everybody's experiences is, is, there's probably some commonality in all of it. And there's also things that are entirely unique. Mm-hmm. I just want to say to people, anyone who hears this, and mostly they're all on board. This is a very self-selected group of humans who would tune into a podcast like this and keep listening. But if you're one of the people who want to ascribe this word selfish, I think you should listen to what Reggie just said and listen, go back, rewind, and listen to it a few more times. That's not a selfish way of thinking. Literally staying alive only for other people is arguably the least selfish thing one could do. But almost by definition, you can't have a more selfless act. So let's just put a pause on some of the way we, uh, who the fuck is hearing this? Right? You, you know, it's all people who already get what I'm saying. You know, sometimes I just feel like there's a lot of value for me, hopefully for you and others, but yeah, the preaching to the choir. Maybe <laughs> there's like three people out there that stumble on and they're like, oh shit. I have a good number of listeners. I just think they're mostly, they get it. Yes and no. I didn't get it when I first started listening. Oh. Yeah, like I said, when I was at that 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 bleak point in my life a few months ago, I literally just Googled suicide podcast not knowing what I was going to find. And I bet you found a mix of things. Yeah. I think what drew me to your podcast in particular is you keep it real and you come across as somebody who actually gets it, somebody who's actually been there. So I don't feel patronized. Yeah, a lot of those. Yeah, I'm not going to comment on other podcasts, but I'm proud of the work we do. 
you first said you had two attempts and then you said, no, no, wait, there's three attempts. Now that is an interesting thing because most people remember it. Is it just because of the way you're defining it a little bit looser? Yeah, I would say so. Okay. When is two and when is three? And sounds like they were kind of similar. Escalate, escalate, escalate. Yep. That's exactly what happened. It was an escalation point. Attempt number two happened in 2019. I was in a a really rough point just with my personal life, my interpersonal life. And I was also still recovering from my kidney transplant surgery. It was a very long and hard recovery. And, you know, I didn't qualify for short-term disability. So I still had to go back to work full-time, even like a lot of pain. Why would you not qualify? What prevented you? What fucking silly, absurd, unethical, bullshit policy, bureaucratic shit would prevent somebody? I'm sorry to laugh. I'm not laughing at you. It's so absurd. That's why you hear. That's what you hear. Somebody get a kidney transplant. They don't qualify. Who the fuck qualifies, Reggie? Tell me. Thank you. I, I, I wish I had an answer for that. I had to go back to work five and a half weeks after my surgery, because that was the only paid leave I could get. And I was lucky enough to get that paid leave. But after that, I, I, I had to go back to work, even though I was in, in crippling pain. Um, I had like scar tissue damage that caused me chronic pain so that I could barely walk. And my doctors didn't believe me. So I finally had to beg them to write me a script for physical therapy so I could walk again. Um, yeah, I had to go back to work. I mean, I, I asked for some unofficial accommodations, but yeah, I had to go back to work. And I was going through some uh, extremely traumatic things in my interpersonal life, which I don't want to get into. But And that was that also a bus? Yep, there was a bus. There was a, there was a, a mental bus involved. Yeah, I remember being at work. Um, I work in education. I remember feeling so not just overwhelmed, but just ashamed and just feeling like a failure of a human being that I remember this moment very clearly. I had to go pick up a student. I didn't want anybody to look at me. So I walked out of my office with a sheet of paper in front of my face so that nobody could look at me. I probably looked like a crazy person. And I had the thought, I need to get out of here. I need to just go and throw myself in front of a bus. I even started walking towards the gate. And it was like, I don't know if you want to call it divine intervention or something, but something physically caused me to walk to the front office and tell the office manager, I need you to drive me to the the mental hospital. Wow. And they took you? Yeah. She drove me to the mental hospital. Can I tell you a little bit about the shitty experience I had there? Oh, you know, I want to hear that. May I also ask before then though, was that your first experience in a mental hospital? Yes. All right. And you were mid thirties. Mm-hmm. Early to mid, I'm doing the math here on the fly. Please tell me about your hospital experience. Yes. So the crisis intervention center, as it called, is this new, big, beautiful, shiny building on the outside. I walked into reception and it was like this new, modern looking building. But then once I got checked in, like mm-hmm. behind the doors where they like mm-hmm. do like the triage, it was another story. It, it was like, like like a completely different story whatsoever. Like the building was bleak. The nurse asked me to give a urine sample for drug testing. And I was in such a state. I was in chronic pain. So I can't do like the, I can't give a urine sample the regular way. I needed one of those like plastic hats. And I forgot to ask the nurse for a plastic hat for my urine sample because I was in such a bad state. So the bathroom that I was in had a shower area. 
And I ended up squatting over the shower area to give my urine sample. And then I realized that the shower wasn't working, so I couldn't rinse it away. So I told the, the nurse, hey, I'm so sorry. I peed in the shower and I can't clean it up. And then she got mad at me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I knew where this was going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fucking hell. Ah. Anything that kept me from 100% committing myself was the, the triage nurse who came in was the only person in that building who treated me like a human being. Him telling me that I was that I still deserve to live and me telling my story to him and him telling me you are resilient and you were strong. He was the only person in that building who made me feel like like I mattered. And it was because of him that I didn't fully check myself in because I knew if I checked myself in, I would be held prisoner and I wouldn't be treated like a human being. Wow. And you wonder about the people who just by chance didn't have a guy like that. What ha- Yeah, but well, what happens to them? And by the way, and I'm doing this a lot with you. I don't know why you say something and then I, I make announcements to the to the listeners. I don't typically do that that often, but you don't need to be in a fucking hospital to be that guy. You can just be that guy or girl or however you identify, period, in life. that You could just be someone in someone's life and be just like that. I don't know if it was a triage nurse or whoever it was, that person who made you just listened. Mm-hmm. He didn't shame me or, or guilt me or tell me, Oh, it's not that bad. It's all in your head. He sure. told it's hard and right. you're strong as hell for making it this far. And that's yep. maybe what I needed to hear. Yeah. Again, I go back to, I think a lot of people mean, well, they just don't have the skill set or awareness to do what he did. They just don't. And so do you teach him? I don't know, but wow. I right. glad, glad that he's around for you. Uh, fuck yeah. all the others. You, you're criminals. I know most of you aren't criminals. And this is just Sean speaking. And you're just doing your job and you're getting paid and you probably don't like it. And you have to put food on the table and it's a system. And I get all of that. But I will say shame on you for treating people poorly, period. I don't care what your reasons are. Done. That's it. That's my rant for the moment. There'll be more. All right. I'm not going to win a lot of friends by saying stuff like that. I'm <laughs> just not. You get out. How long were you there for? So since I only went through the, the triage, it was about an hour tops. And then I um, I took an Uber home since, um, you know, I had been driven to the center. And then I spent the week recovering at home. Did they have to let you go or you just leave? The triage nurse gave me the okay to leave. You went home. I'm sort of bouncing around a little bit. I know. How long ago was your last one? And I'm wondering if that's connected to when you look for that word suicide in Apple. Yeah. Yeah. That was when I, this third time around was when I looked for it and it happened in August or September of this year, August or September. 2022. Of 2022. Once again, I'd had a major traumatic event in my interpersonal life that just out of respect for privacy of the people in my life, I won't get into. And once again, I was thinking a little bit more broadly that time beyond like um, jumping in front of a bus. I was also thinking of a more prolonged form of suicide, which was, well, what if I stopped taking my anti-rejection medications for my transplant? Mm. Because if you stop taking those anti-rejection uh, medications, you eventually your your body rejects the, the the transplant and you die of organ failure eventually. So I I had the thought of I don't want to be here anymore. Just going to stop taking my meds, or conversely, maybe I'll overdose on my meds. So this has come up a couple times, as, as best I can recall, and we you know we're at about 150 conversations now. Not that common. That's a long and 
painful way to go. So that's why one of the reasons I don't think I hear it that much. Now it might happen and people don't share it with me. Usually people want it to be quick and painless. And if I don't know if you can remember what you were thinking or how you were feeling about long and painful, or did you not, did you not see it that way? Oh, I knew it would be long and painful, but my rationale was, well, this way, it's not necessarily me committing the act of suicide. It's nature taking its course because, you know, I was born with a defective kidney. You know, I'm just letting nature do what should have been done 10, you know, uh, when I was 10 years old, you know, I'm a, I had a very self-ableist idea in my mind, like trigger warning ableism for your listeners. But um, there have been times where I, where I get down on myself for like having to have an organ transplant because I think, well, I'm just an evolutionary failure. You know, I would not be alive without medical intervention. So do I even deserve to be alive? Let me ask you that question. Do you deserve to be alive right now? Now that I'm in my rational, rational state of mind, I say, uh, uh, absolutely, I believe that. But in that moment, because of the interpersonal conflict that I'd had with somebody, which, you know, I still carry responsibility for that interpersonal conflict that caused like a permanent severance with the person who was very dear to me. Uh I felt in that moment, like not only am I an evolutionary failure, but you know, I can't even maintain this meaningful relationship. And even though I wasn't the only one who, who harmed, who caused harm in that relationship, I feel like a terrible person and I don't deserve to live. So I may as well just let nature take its course because I'm such a piece of shit anyway. When was the last time you felt like that? Cause it doesn't sound like at least as we talk right now, you feel that way. Is that just going to kind of come and go or is it happen in chunks? You know, Sean, it, I don't think I felt like to the point where I feel like I don't deserve to live since that big event, but I can tell you that interpersonal conflict tends to, is more likely to, to, to make me feel that way. Um, yeah. Even though I don't ha- meet the clinical diagnosis for ADHD, um, I think one explanation for why I struggle with interpersonal relationships is I have something called relationship sensitivity dysphoria. Your listeners feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. Um it's where you have extreme anxiety around your relationships with other people where any like slight sense of rejection or perceived rejection sends you into a tailspin and you can't handle it. Rejection or even perceived rejection with a lot more intensity. Like it feels like like an existential crisis almost if you feel like someone has perceived you. Like you go into like, you know, you, your body treats that threat or perceived threat to rejection the same way it would like an actual physical threat. Right. Right. And it, and as we get older, mm-hmm. uh, it's just, it adds up. Exactly. All right. So 2022, a little bit of a different kind of feeling around how you might do it. Mm-hmm. That was in the fall. How many people know that we're talking? I've told my wife I was going to be on a podcast, but I haven't told her specific one I might tell her later. You've only gone to the hospital once. I'm guessing you didn't go back. I'm, I will never go back there. Exactly. And and also, let, let's add this. If your best friend or your wife were going through something, would you tell them to go to that place? Fuck no. Exactly. So just noted. Noted hospitals. This is the damage you do. Um, now, some of them do good work and some people had a great experience. So should be should be noted. But I do hear a lot of these I also wonder, because people know how I feel about it, it probably impacts what and how they share things. Mm -hmm. 
I'm cool with people saying, hey, I had a great experience in the hospital. It saved my life. Cool. I want to hear more of that. I just don't hear it very often. So if you were feeling really down, mm-hmm. thinking about a bus or whatever, or maybe a few steps before that, from what it sounds like, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, of course, you have a wife, a partner who you can talk to. Mm-hmm. Though not everybody's partner is open to that. And that's right, right. fairly common. Do you have anybody else where you can use even the word suicide and they don't freak out and they could do what it sounds like maybe how your wife engages, how that guy, I think it was a guy in the hospital, different relationships, of course, but they still sort of, they can handle it, right? Like anyone else in your life that can do that? Uh, My psychiatrist. Okay. Other than that, it's really just my mom and my wife and my psychiatrist who I can talk to about the specificity of my my suicide attempts and the buildup that goes with that. One thing that my wife has done really well, she can recognize when I'm starting to build up to that. One strategy that I actually use to keep myself from getting to that point, I want to I want to stress right now, not everybody has like the privilege of having PTO. Um, I'm very lucky to have the kind of job where I get PTO. And my PTO has literally saved my life because I recognize that. When I'm building up to that point where if I don't take a break, I'm going to reach my break and have you know, like suicidal ideation and possible attempt, I have to take a day off work to yeah. recover. It's not optional. Right. I have to do it or I will break. PTO saves lives. Mental health days save lives. Right. Take care of your mental health, but you better make sure you, you better make sure you fucking at work at 8 a.m. And get all that shit done, but take care of your mental health. Okay, there's a just now, but <laughs> uh, you can so you, How long have you been seeing a psychiatrist or a psychologist and psychiatrist or psychiatrist only? I've been seeing a psychiatrist for about 12 years, 11 and a half years now. Um, wow. I've had several therapists on and off. I'm kind of between therapists right now. I was on Zoloft for about a decade, and um, nowadays I'm on. Lexapro and Buspirone hydrochloride with an emergency lorazepam. I don't endorse any specific medication. This is just the particular cocktail that works for me. And the medications help keep me at a baseline, particularly my OCD. Gotcha. What does your wife say when, so you had said that she is able to see when things are escalating. Mm-hmm. What is one, I don't know why I referenced her. I, don't, I could just ask you. What's one of the bigger things or the more common things where it's like, oh, Reggie's escalating. What are you doing or saying or how are you behaving? Um, she'll read my nonverbal language, the way I'll be tense. She says like I, I use more terse language. Like we've been together for like over a decade now. So she's learned to pick up my body language, even like the way I groan, like, like if I start stimming, for example, like clapping my hands, she'll recognize that. I'm not okay. And she'll, she'll like, you know, tell me, okay, you know, what's going on? You know, do you need to take a break? Do you need to take the day? What do you need? Yeah. Go wife. Yeah. She's like a Reggie whisperer. (laughs) (laughs) Now, do you ever wish, well, as we're speaking now or other moments of your life that any of those attempts had been successful? No. And let me tell you why. Um, As I mentioned, I have a relationship with death where I always see death around the corner. I wouldn't call death a friend necessarily, but death is a neighbor who I'm very familiar with. When I get into those states of mind where I feel like I just want to end it already, 
I almost view it as like, I feel like a child, like an impulsive child who's like, damn it, I just want to be done now. I want it now. So that child version of myself wants to go to death too soon. It's like the adult in me has to say, be patient. It's not time yet. I know you're uncomfortable and I know you're in pain right now, but you need to wait. The adult mind in me, or sometimes the divine intervention, like I referenced earlier, can kind of step in and soothe that child within me. That's like, I can't take this anymore. I need to go now. It's called conflict right there. Exactly. Exactly. You said you need to wait. Mm-hmm. When the, the adult or the non-child wait, wait. How long do you think you're going to be able to wait? Which is my another way of me asking, how long are you going to live? That's a good question. My, I'm hoping my, trans, my, my current transplant will last me uh, another decade or so. After that, I'll have another transplant. In general, I, I don't know how much longer I will have left to live. I mean, I could do everything right and never have a suicidal thought again and wind up in a car crash. We could. Well, sure, sure. Um, but if, if you're talking specifically about whether I think I'm going to take my life again, um, I don't know. I wish I could say with confidence that I've got it all under control. I'm never actually going to go through with it. But when I'm in that state of mind, I get really, really impulsive. I get that. Makes sense. I can tell you right now, I want to live. Yeah. What? First of all, is that a bird? So I'm um, Nicaraguan Mexican, and this is the the Guarda Barrancos, which is the national bird of Nicaragua. Who's the Nicaraguan and who's the Mexican? Mom's Nicaraguan, dad's Mexican. How'd they meet? My dad uh, in the 70s was a med school student at Stanford University. My mom was a dispatcher with the Palo Alto Police Department. My dad was living in a, renting a house with some other med students and this drunk guy walked in and refused to leave. So my dad called the police department. My mom answered. She kept him on the phone and my dad's buddies were egging him on like, ask her out, ask her out. So he asked the police dispatcher out for a cup of coffee and she said yes. And that's how my parents met. No way. (laughs) Yes way. If it weren't for that drunk guy, I wouldn't be here. Uh, having also, oh, and it wasn't for your father asking her out, but that's so usually par for the course. That's who I guess. Yeah. So, all right. Other, uh, are there any myths? The question of myths that I always ask that you would like to dispel things that are just simply not true around suicide, ideating, mental illness, mental health, whatever you want. I think the biggest one is that you can shame or scold somebody out of doing it. Bear in mind, I'm not like a clinician or anything, but I think the biggest thing you can do to save somebody's life who's in that situation is tell them, I know that you're in pain and I know that it's really difficult. Now, some might think, oh, well, if you tell, if you reaffirm to them that they're in pain, then that's just going to reaffirm the idea that, oh, I'm in pain. It's worthless. But no, it's more just sometimes you need to hear somebody say, yeah, this is really painful. I see your pain so simple but it's so hard for for people to to do you know because it's hard to look at somebody else's pain one thing i've hel- i've found that's helped me with other suicidal people you know when i've been the one helping a suicidal person is um don't threaten them it's not useful one thing that that would help me in that instance is if somebody said okay look i'm not going to report you but i want you to call a suicide hotline to you know to get some like de-escalation tips because the suicide the suicide hotline at least gives you an outlet for that. You're like, eh. Well, no, I'm cool with the de-escalation, but they'll call the cops. 
if you know what to say and what not to say. I've kind of learned. Well, everybody what- has that skill set, knows how to navigate. That's the big ask. But yeah, if it worked for you, great. Absolutely. Another thing that I found is helpful, and again, this is also in my unprofessional opinion, sure. so grain of salt, is to check with people to see like what other unmet needs they have. So like if I'm if I'm trying to help somebody who's feeling suicidal, I might I might say, okay, you know, I know that technically I don't I don't have control over whether you choose to do this or not. But let's also check out, you know, what are some other things going on in your life that are causing you to feel this way? Like have you are 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 you on the verge of homelessness? Are you have you eaten? Yeah. Do you have access to your meds? Are you yeah. hydrated? Yeah. And a lot of times I'll say, okay, look, I know I can't, I can't stop you from doing the thing, but what if, can you do just one thing for me? Can you take a short nap for me and see how you feel afterwards? Can you eat a meal for me and see how you feel afterwards? And I'm not under the impression that that's going to solve the problem, but it buys you some time. And sometimes like when you get, when you can get one of your basic needs met, like sleep or hydration or food or meds that can, that can kind of put you in a more rational frame of mind. I don't want to say it's a myth about suicide, but like an unrecognized fact is that economic security is suicide prevention. Housing is suicide prevention. Access to basics like food, water, and shelter are suicide prevention. Suffering prevention too. Suffering prevention too. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know if those count as like myth busters as much as like truth bombs, but there you have it. I love that. I love that word truth bomb. Yeah. Do you have anything else? I actually have a question before I say sort of open-ended, add whatever you want. Experience in listening to the podcast or perhaps even this conversation. Do you think there is a question I should be asking that I haven't asked or I don't typically ask? Hmm. I think you you did ask the, the most critical question of me, which is what saved you? What kept you from doing it? And okay. that's a question that I always listen for whether explicitly or implicitly in the other podcasts is what was the intervention that saved you? What was the thing that saved you? I wonder if I always ask that. Yeah. Cause I do spend a fair amount of time in the suicide attempt. Mm-hmm. So I hope I balance it, but yeah, good. All right, cool. I feel like every person that, that I've listened to or almost every person was able to verbalize like what it was that, 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 that saved them in the moment. Yeah. What else Reggie in Arizona? Who's a bird, Nicaraguan bird on a shirt, <laughs> sitting in a car, weird weather, like it is in many places. But what else would you like to share before we go back to our incredibly exciting lives? I want to share a thank you to you for creating this space for those of us in the suicide attempt community. And I want to thank every single person um, who's gone before me on this podcast. You saved my life. Mm. You saved my life. <laughs> Thank you. You saved my life. Thank you. You're welcome. Maybe you're saving others. I hope so. Whatever, whether I, you know, I say God bless you, even though I'm agnostic, but you know, God bless you, universe so- bless you for, for doing this. Thank uh, you. That's very kind of you, Reggie. I appreciate it. And, you know, I get I get maybe more out of it than anybody in this whole thing. You know, it's one of those one of those uh, things where it's incredibly selfish, but it's also giving, and I can handle balancing both. But it's it's as much for me as anybody else. <laughs> I can't explain it. I can't really explain it. I know. think that's 
service is all about. You know, service helps the giver too. Yeah. I'm imagining your days vary depending on how you're feeling, if you're working. Today, we're talking on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. You, I believe it's like late morning. Mm-hmm. Um, what's your day like? What's a Sunday like for you? Sundays tend to be a little bit stressful because they're the day before I go back to work. So I tend to spend Sundays doing certain executive functioning tasks that'll save me trouble throughout the week. So like most Sundays I do meal prep. Okay. Um, I'll cook like a big batch of meals so that I, um, I don't have to think about breakfast or lunch during the weekdays. Um, spend some time with my wife, spend some time with, um, one of my girlfriends. I'm, I'm polyamorous. I have two girlfriends, shout out. (laughs) Um, and then probably just spend some time like having introvert decompression time. Just a curious bald guy in North Carolina. (laughs) Um, and you know, just like as a ally to the trans community, I think even if our gender identity, sexuality doesn't inform like all, like everything about us, like I do think it offers some context. My experience with queerness and womanhood as a queer cis Latina does add some context to my story. People might relate to parts of that. No doubt about it. And you know, what's interesting is that I've had not a lot. I've had some conversations with people in the Latin, Latino, Latina community lately. And not only in, in the in North America, mm-hmm. I just spoke with somebody who lives in El Salvador. I had a conversation with a guy in Mexico and I am especially not more so, but very intrigued by Latin America, Central America, South America. Spent some time there, and I do know a lot of it is influenced in part by Catholicism, which has its own take on a lot of this stuff. What happens with that is that people are less likely to share. Good for you. That takes a lot. Takes a lot for anybody, but like that might even be more like, woo, take them in hell and heaven? Hmm. All the sorts of shame. Yeah. Anyway. Well, listen, thank you very, very much. And most of the podcasts end this way where Sean says, I don't know how to end the podcast. I've never figured out a good way to end the podcast. So I will say, I hope your uh, Sunday is uh, nice or at least not bad. Thank you. Lesbian in Arizona with the weird asymmetrical haircut says to the very kind bald guy in North Carolina. That was perfectly said. You should close every show. All right. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Bye. As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support. Special thanks to Reggie out in Arizona. Thank you, Reggie. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. Hello at SuicideNoted.com on Facebook or Twitter at Suicide Noted. And a reminder to check the show notes to learn about all kinds of other things, including our membership. And that is all for episode number 157. Stay strong. Do the best you can. I'll talk to you soon.